Good morning. It's good to see everyone. If you will open your Bibles, this is the time we come to God's Word. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll be there just for a second, and then we're going to flip over to the book of Daniel. But in 1 Peter chapter 4, and our ongoing verse-by-verse study of this important letter... We actually are coming to a new section, and it's a section that deals with last things. Eschatology, actually, is the biblical or theological word for that. But here you see in verse 7, the end of all things is near, therefore, and that's all I'm reading today from 1 Peter. That's just to introduce the subject because that's what he's starting. He's going to go into now a section where he talks about living in light of the second coming. It's very interesting. It's eschatos is the word. It means last, last things or prophecy, future events. It's the time when Jesus comes back to restore all things. It's the consummation. Is another word that's used. Peter doesn't give a whole lot of details here, but he has be, made reference throughout the letter to the last things or the consummation of all things or the last uh, time, the end time. When he says in chapter 1, we fix our hope on what is in the future. We fix our hope on things that will be accomplished in the future. We fix our hope on that inheritance that will never be destroyed. If you look down in chapter 4, verse 13, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory, see that, revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. And then chapter 5, verse 11, to Him be dominion forever and ever. There are two approaches, I think, and somewhat extreme approaches to eschatology. I think there are some who are just absolutely indifferent to it. Some who do not think it's important, do not think we should spend our time even talking about it. There are some well-known theologians and popular Bible teachers that even promote that view. Um, They say it's too hard to understand, don't be divisive, and don't talk about it. I think that's one extreme, personally, and I think the other is that we get intellectual about it, and that's the people who get all the charts and the uh, information and just like to have more information about the second coming and the last days and all those kinds of things. That can be bad, too. That's all you do is just store up knowledge and zeal for that knowledge that's, uh, because you're, you're just really taken in by the events of the last days. But Peter tells us how to do this right, I think, in verse 7, when he says, the end of all things is near, therefore. You want to talk about the end, but you want the word therefore there. Because you want to know, so what does that mean for me, knowing that the end is near? Knowing that we're getting closer and closer, and Peter's writing from his perspective 2,000 years ago, and we're even closer now, but he's saying the end is near. And then he's going to tell, tell us in 4 and 5 how we must live and should live the word end is not necessarily chronos, chronology. It's more the idea, of, like I said before, the goal. The goal will one day be reached. God's got a goal. God's got a goal in all this. 
And it's the ultimate of all things, and it's all the events that are associated with the second coming of Christ. That's what we're talking about. And that could start at any time. So therefore is not just knowledge, but therefore. Not just knowledge about the end times, but therefore how I should then live. So I want to talk about how the world's going to end this morning. And to do that, I went to the Discovery Channel online. (laughs) And the way the world is going to end, asteroid impact. Well, these are 20 different ways it could possibly end. I am not going to read all of these to you. I don't even understand some of them. I'm going to say some I don't even understand. I read about it, and I still didn't understand after I read it. But the point is, asteroid is going to hit us. Gamma ray burst, I forgot what that was, but that's going to happen. That could happen. Collapse of the vacuum, I'm not sure what that is either. Rogue black holes, I sort of get that. A black hole out there that just sort of comes along and sucks us in, I guess. Reversal of the Earth's magnetic field, that would be bad. Just think about that one. Global epidemics, closer to home, isn't it? Ecosystem collapse. Global warming, of course, has to be on the list. Biotech disaster. Environmental toxins. A global war. That's a reality in some, a lot of people's minds. Robots could take over. We made these robots. They could actually take us over. Artificial intelligence. Mass insanity. That's really where we're going. Mass insanity. An alien invasion. And what's popular, has been popular recently, is zombies. And his final, the final thing they said on the Discovery Channel website was, someone just wakes up and realizes it was all a dream. And that's how the world all ends. As Christians, we do not have to live with mystery about this. We are told exactly how the world is going to end. We don't know when, and we should never try to set a date for any of this, because we don't know. But we know it is going to happen because that is God's design goal, the consummation of all things, the ultimate fulfillment of his plan. It's all headed toward something. Turn to Daniel 7 with me this morning. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 7, it's interesting when you look on the internet, they give you all of these uh, things you should do to prepare for the end of the world. I mean, you could spend millions of dollars to build a bus underneath the, under the ground, plant a bus underground to live in, you, to build yourself some kind of shelter to live in. And then you could spend thousands of dollars on all the supplies you would need. The list is just a credible list of things you would need to last you for two weeks. They don't tell you what's going to happen after two weeks. And they don't tell you what to do about all the people that are fighting you to get what they can from you because they didn't prepare like you did. They just, it, it's, just, it's just interesting futility to be preoccupied with those kinds of things because as Christians, we have the plan laid out for us. And we're going to see part of that in Daniel 7. We'll pick up with more of this next week. But in Daniel chapter 7 we have what we need to know of how things are going to turn out. I do not have to bite my nails. I don't have to bite my nails wondering what's going to happen as I look at the world and look at all the bad things going on in the world. I don't have to sit there and think, oh my, how's it going to turn out? Are we going to win this thing? 
You know, it's, it's like, it's like you, you, you want to watch a sporting event, but you're not going to be home at that time. So what do you do? You record that sporting event. You record it. And then before you get to watch your, a, a recording, you find out that your team won the game. You, you find out you won. You haven't watched it yet, but you know they won. But you think to yourself, I would still like to watch that game. So you sit down and watch it, and as you're watching it, you're seeing the score go up and down. You're seeing at one point your team gets 20 points below, but you're not worried. You're not biting your nails. You're not fretting. You know why? Because you know the outcome. You know where this is headed. You know who's in charge of everything. And so there's no panic that you don't know. And God has given us the information we know that that we know who's going to end, and we know what team's going to win, and we know no matter how bad it gets, no matter how far down we may feel things are looking, we know that in the end, He pulls it all out. He pulls it all out. And that is our hope. The song, This Is My Father's World, has a, a core, uh, um, the third verse of that song. This is my Father's world, oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. Now that is, I could just say amen, let's go home. That is, that's my sermon right there. The prophecy gives us this hope and this peace. And the prophecies in Scripture tell us it's not always going to be this way and that God has designed prophecy for that purpose. And uh, God uses prophecy. He's had it written down in lots of places in the Bible and Daniel and Revelation and uh, Thessalonians and other places and other books of the Bible, Ezekiel and Jeremiah. You can just go on and on, always giving us these prophecies to know what? That he's in control. In fact, I think that's the reason Daniel is used by God to write to the people, to the Jewish people who are being held in captivity in Babylon. They need some hope. They need to know that even though they are living as sojourners in a foreign land, even though they are exiles in a foreign land, they've been taken out of their homeland and placed into the Babylonian Empire, they need the hope that their God is still in control. And God uses Daniel to write them the prophecies of the book of Daniel to let them know that their God reigns. Their God's in control. That though you might look at these world leaders and think they're all making these decisions on their own, And they are. They're real decisions. But the point is, God is in control. History is His story. And it's all going in a certain direction. So we come to Daniel chapter 7, sort of a transitional chapter in the book of Daniel. In the first six chapters, you have all those great stories. You have the story of how Daniel got into Babylon. He was brought in with the other fine young men and brought in and trained for his position. He interpreted dreams of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, and he, uh, or the handwriting on the wall for Belshazzar, and then, uh, then he was thrown into a lion's den. Those are all the stories of Daniel 1 through 6. Then you had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going into the fiery furnace in the first part of the book of Daniel. And then you come to chapter 7, it's like transitional here. Now we get into some prophecies. 
In fact, what's unique about Daniel chapter 7 is Daniel in the past has been interpreting prophecies for others. Now we find out that Daniel himself has a prophecy. We see that in Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Belshazzar, by the way, is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has died. Belshazzar took his place. King of Babylon, during that time, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. And then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. So Daniel is... During the time of Belshazzar, back in chapter 5, back in chapter 5, this is when he had this dream, this vision. He was, uh, Belshazzar, by the way, was that very arrogant guy. Remember, he was the one that had the party and used all the vessels of the temple to party with, basically. And handwriting uh, came on the wall and basically came and interpreted for him and said, you're about to lose this place. And sure enough, the Medes and the Persians came in, and that was that. And so we go into this prophecy, and this is what I want you to see this morning. Pay pay close attention, if you would. Just pay close attention. I'm not going to get bogged down in details. There's a lot of symbolism. I get it. There's a lot of uh, uh, metaphors. There's a lot of things like that in this, but just, just hang in there. I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven were stirring up the great sea. When you see this kind of language used in other places, it means that God is doing something. God in his providence is about to do something. And he's going to use angels to do that. And the great sea we're talking about about here is the Mediterranean Sea. One Bible commentator, Warren Wearsby, said this, From the human point of view, the nations seem to work out their own destinies, but the invisible winds of God blow over the surface of the waters to accomplish His will in His time. So Daniel says, I was looking and I saw God providentially working in the nation and the world. That's what he's saying. And notice what he saw. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. And then he goes on to describe these beasts. The first one was like a lion, wings of eagles, excuse me, wings of an eagle. I kept looking at it. Its wings were plucked. It lifted up the ground, made to stand and two feet like a man. He goes on to describe that lion. Then he goes on to describe the second beast, the resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they were said to arise, devour much meat. And then there was a third beast, and this one was like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And verse 7 says, After this I kept looking looking in the night visions, and I saw a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now this should sound familiar. If you know anything about the book of Daniel, and you know anything about King Nebuchadnezzar, and you know anything about a statue that he saw in a dream he had one night in chapter 2, this tall statue that had a head of gold, a breast of silver, thighs of bronze, and legs of iron, and ten toes. He had that, vi- that, night, he had that night dream, that's a, a dream he had one night, and Nebuchadnezzar went and interpreted that dream for him. 
And if you go back and read in chapter 2, verse 31, you get the interpretation of that dream. This is a little different in the sense that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had was from the man's perspective. This perspective here in Daniel chapter 7 is God's perspective. We're going to be talking about the very same kingdoms, but now Daniel is going to show them from the side of how evil they can be and how evil they were. So four nations, the, the lion represents, I'm getting this from Daniel 2.31 and following. You can read that there yourself, Daniel 2.31 and following. I don't have time to go into the details of this, but in Daniel 2.31, excuse me, in the, in the prophecy of Daniel 2, we're told that that's the Babylonian empire. This is you, Nebuchadnezzar. You're the head of gold. You are the lion. Verse 5, the bear, that's the Medo-Persian Empire. That's the one that conquered the Persian Empire. They were more dominant than the Medes, but they're the ones that conquered the Babylonians. This is all historical. After you, Nebuchadnezzar, is going to come the bear, the Persian Empire. And after the Persian Empire, it's going to be the leopard or the Greek Empire. Alexander the Greek, leopard, fast. Uh, that's exactly how Alexander the Great worked. He was very fast acting in 13 years he conquered the world all the way to India and he died at 33 what have you accomplished in 33 years <laughs> I mean think about that and then he divided it up to four generals and you see all that symbolism there in that verse 6 and then verse 7 is the next empire that came after that and that would be the Roman Empire and that's really no animal name there, except that it's a very cruel empire. It lasted a long time. Ten kings, ten toes. We see comparing the Daniel 2 and the Daniel 7 pictures here. And this is the vision he saw. Four kingdoms. I want to know what this means. So verse 15, go down to verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who was standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. Excuse me. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Not sure who this man is. Not sure who this man is that he turns to for this interpretation. We are given some hint that it might be Gabriel, the messenger angel, the one that appeared to Mary. Um, the messenger angel from God, we get that from Daniel 8 and Daniel 9. You can write those verses down and go back and look at that yourself. But verse 17 says, these great beasts, this is what this messenger told him, these great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. So they represent kings, just like Daniel 2 said. Verse 19 says, excuse me, verse uh, 18. I'm sorry, I'm getting great beasts for 17. Okay. Uh, but the saints of the highest... Okay, these great beasts, verse 17, which are four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. Verse 18, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Verse 19, I desire to know the exact meaning of that fourth beast. There's something about that fourth beast that I need to know more about. You see that in verse 19, which was different from all the others. That's the one that had the ten, the ten horns. 
That was the last of them. It's the one that we're not described by any animal. We're just described as very strong. Exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron, its claws of bronze is devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns, what's that all about? That were on its head and the other horn which came up. Another horn, a horn comes up, what's that all about? And before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boast, which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the ancient of days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. The time arrives when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be the fourth kingdom on earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread down and crush it. That fourth beast, I told you earlier, represents the Roman Empire. And this is what I want to propose to you this morning from looking at this and Revelation, because Revelation 17 helps us in our interpretation of this. This represents the Roman Empire, both historically when it existed and was destroyed in 467 AD maybe, or, or BC. And there's a future, a future revived Roman Empire according to Revelation chapter 17, verse 12. Let me read that to you. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. You can also read about the ten horns, again, in Revelation chapter 13. Rod, what are you trying to tell us? Here's what I'm trying to tell you. This fourth beast represents the Roman Empire. Historically, it followed the Greek Empire. But there's just something about that empire that's different than the others. And according to the book of Revelation, that empire is going to be revived in the future. Near the second coming of Christ, we have the ten horns present That's the point I'm trying to make to you this morning. This exact wording from the book of Daniel appears there again. John MacArthur in his commentary, in fact, if you have a study Bible, you can almost read this in the study Bible as well. The Roman Empire, he said, ended in 476 B.C. historically. It lived on, but it lived on in a divided status called Europe. It will return to that unified strength through the second coming of Christ. That's that's the point I'm trying to make to you this morning. Someday, there will be a, a unified, revived similarity in that part of the world near the Mediterranean of that Roman Empire. When Christ came, there was the Roman Empire. In the future, there will be revived Roman Empire right before he returns. Ten kingdoms and ten leaders, that's what the ten horns. When you see the word horns, it's, it's used in the book of Psalms to refer to a king, a horn, a king. And they will occupy the same territory of the ancient Roman Empire. They will form in the future some sort of ten-nation confederation that will exist in those last days. That's Revelation, hey, you read it. Revelation 13, Revelation 17. And that's why we often look, you hear people in in, in the premillennial camp, you're as often referring to what's happening in that part of the world. Because that's significant to the future 
That's the part of the world that will see the fulfillment, we believe, from Daniel and from Revelation, the end of the world. Because right before Christ comes back, ten nations And you have to understand this. There's a gap. You have to understand this gap. When the writers of the Old Testament were writing about the coming of Jesus, they never saw the second coming. They didn't see the second coming. They couldn't reconcile suffering servant and king reigning. I mean, they didn't see a second coming. They just saw one coming, first coming. So you and I have the benefit of the New Testament and we have the benefit of looking back and seeing, well, this is how it developed. He came first as servant. He will come back again as king. So what's Daniel doing for us? He's just surveying world history for us. I want you Jews to, I want you Jews who are in captivity. I want you Christians who are in Peter's day. I want you to know that your God is in control, that he's on the throne, that he's in control of history. It's his story and he's got, the, he's got a plan in all of this. I want you to know that. No matter how bad it gets. So I'm just trying to stick to the obvious things here. There's a lot of questions I'm sure you have about other things in these verses, but I just want to stick to the obvious, and we'll talk, talk symbols and things like that later, but I'm just trying to give you a big picture this morning. So in the future, there will be a group of nations that will be dominant when Christ comes a second time. That's my point. But number two, and out of these kingdoms, these ten nations, Satan is going to have a kingdom. Look at verse 8 of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. While I was contemplating the horns, remember that's the kings. Behold another horn. Oh, another horn, a little horn. That's number 11 of horns. Came up among them, and, first, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it, by this little horn. And behold, this horn, this little horn, possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and the mouth uttering great boast. Go down to verse 11. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. He was boastful, prideful. I kept looking until the beast was slain and his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. All this to say, what is that little horn? That little horn is one who the devil uses to destroy and tear up other kingdoms. He pulls up three of them by their roots. He dominates. Like I said, the word horn is used in 1 Samuel and Psalms for the word ruler. And this is a ruler that comes out of these ten nations from among these other horns. I believe that this is who we refer to in Scripture as the Antichrist. The Antichrist, this world leader that will one day come on the scene, will come out of those ten horns, those ten nations in the future, that future revived Roman Empire. I think that's who he represents. And it's the first time he's mentioned is right here in 7-8. He's mentioned again all throughout the New Testament. But he's mentioned here in Daniel 7-8 for the first time. He will be intelligent and arrogant and brilliant some people have speculated who it might be. They see brilliant and arrogant people on the scene. Some thought it was Donald Trump. I've heard that one. But you've heard all kinds of people accuse people of being the Antichrist. No one knows. 
Look at verse 20 of Daniel chapter 7. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up and before which three fell three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boast and which was larger in appearance and its associates. This, this horn, this eleventh horn that came out of these ten and is dominant over all of them, a larger than life figure is going to dominate. Verse 21, I kept looking and that horn was waging war with believers and overpowering them. There will be believers in that time and he will be at war with them. Verse 22, until the ancient of days come, came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints and the highest one and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. I'll say more about that in just a moment. But he's going to go against, he's going to war against believers. He's going to lose, but because of God, he's going to take action against him and his armies. Look at verse 23. Thus this messenger told me, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones, and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High, and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into the hand for a time, times and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. That's just a lot of what I've just told you. He will be dominant over the other kingdoms, kings. How does this play out? I'm not going to have time to develop this either, but in Daniel chapter 9, in Daniel chapter 9, it says that the Antichrist will make a covenant with the nation Israel for seven years, and they will, he will appear to be Israel's best friend. Listen, Israel is looking for a best friend right now. Don't you agree? They don't have many in the world. And they will be looking for a friend, an ally, and he will ally and covenant with them. And say he will be their protector and then he will turn on them he makes this covenant of seven years and then at the midpoint of that he's going to turn on them and becomes their persecutor and he breaks the covenant and he will go to war with God's people for the remaining three and one half years and that's why most scholars say notice in verse 25 most scholars say time times and half a time is three and a half years. But that's what this guy's going to do. He's going to dominate. He's going to come out of those ten nations. He's going to dominate everybody. And he is going to persecute Israel. They're God's people. <laughs> God's chosen people. I don't care how sinful they look right now. God is faithful to his covenant. I believe he's made promises to that nation and I believe that he's going to fulfill those promises. I hope he does. If he doesn't, then I don't know that I can trust God to prom the promises he's made me. Because he has made some pretty profound promises to that nation for the future. And they need Christ, and they need their Messiah to come to them. And one day he will. So this Antichrist is going to set himself up as God and set himself up as the rightful ruler of the world, and he's going to seek to destroy God's covenant people. That's what this guy's going to do. 
At the end of that seven years, the Christ will return and destroy the Antichrist. You remember, I don't know if you're familiar, you can go back and read Daniel chapter 2, but he talks about a, a, a stone, a rock, a rock that is not honed, a rock that comes out of nowhere and destroys that statue of all those nations that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. The Christ is our rock. I'll show you that in just a moment. Hold your hand in Daniel 7. Turn to Revelation 19 just for a moment. I'm just going to read a few things to you in Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation chapter 19, I'm just I'm not going to read all of this. I was thinking of reading, but just some of it. This is the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies of the earth assembled to make war. Verse 19 of Revelation 19, Revelation 19, 19. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. That's Christ and his army that comes to great battle and the beast was seized and with him the false prophet performed the signs in his present by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image these were thrown into alive into the lake of fire burns with brimstone Revelation 20 go down to Revelation 20 verse 1 this is a debated scripture I get it but it's debated then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand and he, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so he would not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and not received the mark of, on his forehead and, or on his hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. I believe that's literal. I do believe in a literal thousand year reign. Because God made a covenant with David, and God said to David, you will have one of your descendants sit on your throne forever. That's exactly what Gabriel said to Mary. You will, he will be great. The, the child that's in your womb, you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. You can go back to Daniel chapter 7. So the kingdom, of, the kingdom of Satan will be crushed. So you have the kingdoms of the world. I've shown you all of those. The four kingdoms up to the Roman Empire, then the revived Roman Empire, which is still, it still exists today. It's just as, it's called Europe. One day it will be more dominant than it is now. And out of that domination will come this kingdom of Satan. This one who seeks to rule the world and destroy the covenant people of God and any believer, all believers. And you can read more about this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. You can read about it in Revelation 13, verses 1 through 10. If you want to do further reading on some of these things, but there's a clear New Testament passages that talk about this Antichrist. And, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says, Christ will not return until that Antichrist has been revealed. And we don't know that day. 
We know he'll be a world leader who deceives many people and makes a covenant with Israel. We do know that. That's any time we hear of anything going on in Israel, we say, wow, I wonder how that fits into the end. Because Israel is there in the last day before the coming of Christ. We see that in Revelation. Finally, I want to end with this one. Uh, the kingdom of Christ. Go to verse 9 of Daniel chapter 7. Verse 9 says, I kept looking. Daniel chapter 7 verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were open. So you see, you see the, this is God the Father, pure, holy, Given he has universal dominion. This is the final empire, by the way. This is the final empire. This is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus. Because look down in verse 17, verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Son of man is the favorite term of Jesus from referring to himself, by the way. The son of man. So we're talking about Christ, and we're talking about Christ who's going to be appointed by God to be the ruler of this final kingdom this eternal kingdom, this kingdom where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Go to verse 14. And to him, unto to Jesus was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. I love what Revelation eleven fifteen says. The, the angels in heaven said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. I love that statement. It's a glorious picture. And Daniel was also told by Gabriel in verse 18, it's not just going to be Christ reigning on his kingdom. Verse 18 says, The saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. We too will reign with Christ. The believers from all the ages will reign with Christ. Verse 22, Until the ancient of days comes and judgments pass in favor of the saints. The high. We read that verse earlier, but then sovereignty and the dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms on the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey Him. That's what God wants these Jews to remember through the prophet Daniel. We win. We win. It don't look so good right now, but we win. A lot's going to happen, but ultimately he is going to win. Verse 28, then at this point the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. 
This wasn't an academic lesson for Daniel. It affected him. The, the, the second coming of Christ should affect you. It should affect you. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, this stuff should scare you to death. It should. He is going to come back one day and he's going to judge. You'll be king and judge. It should make you feel uneasy. And it should cause you to seek to be on the winning team, right? It should cause you to seek to be with Christ and run to Christ and find refuge in Christ and to put your trust in Christ because that's the only thing that will protect you in the day of wrath and the day of judgment is Christ. The only thing that will keep you from experiencing the wrath of God and the judgment of God and be thrown into the lake of fire is if you're in the ark, like I told you a few weeks ago. Christ is our ark. Just like Noah and his family was protected from the judgment of God, the raging waters of the flood, Christ is our ark from the raging wrath of God that we poured out on this world because of our sin. He died on the cross and took the wrath of God in your place so we can escape the coming worldwide judgment. He who has the Son has life. If you're not a believer, you need life. You need Christ. If you're here and you're a Christian, I'll tell you this much. I have not told you everything. I've only told you from Daniel's perspective this morning. I've only told you what Daniel was revealed to Daniel. As you come into the New Testament, there are going to be other events associated with the second coming. I didn't mention any of those this morning. There are other things that you and I as believers need to know. We need to know that this is imminent. We need to know how we should then live in light of it as believers. We need to look what Daniel did, how he stood firm in his faith in the midst of so much opposition and trusted in a sovereign God in the midst of it all. Pagan culture. We live in a pagan culture. And we too need to have the confidence in our God. Well, that's how it's going to end, folks. That's how it's going to end. And I think we can just rest assured that God is the one that's designed this from a long time ago. And it's His plan. And He will carry it out. He will see it to the end. Thank you, Father, for this time this morning. Thank you for your word and your truth. We just rest on this this morning. We thank you for these words that give us hope and encouragement. We thank you, Father, that, that you have a plan and that you've given us just a small glimpse of it. But we're confident that you will carry it out. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.